Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. Today we're going to be talking about one of the latest Marvel movies, Thor Love and Thunder. The Thor movies have traditionally had a fairly checkered past in the MCU with some of the most standout films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe like Thor Ragnarok, but also one of the greatest stinkers being Thor The Dark World, popularly agreed upon as one of the worst entries in the MCU. Thor Love and Thunder certainly seems to fit the mould of being highly divisive on how people interpret this movie and its, I guess, place in the overall hierarchy of good or bad Marvel movies. Hopefully by now everyone listening to this podcast has seen the movie and had the chance to form their own opinion on it, but here's a brief synopsis of what happens during the course of the movie for those who haven't or need some reminding. Thor Love and Thunder begins with Thor Odin's son roaming the universe with the Guardians of the Galaxy. We see very early on that this sort of work isn't really Thor's style. Hot off the heels of the epic confrontation against the celestially genocidal Thanos, things such as simple territorial disputes between a planetary community and a gang of ruffians which has taken over their holy temple, is so far beneath Thor in terms of a challenge that he falls right back into some very familiar and very old habits that we saw even from Thor 1. We open with a Thor who is extremely verbose, extremely grandstandy, and who is just exulting in the persona he's built up for himself as this galaxy defender, leaving the Guardians to try and find an actual challenge for himself, Thor is quickly brought back to Earth and to New Asgard in pursuit of Gore, the God Killer, who has been going around and slicing up a whole bunch of Thor's friends, including giant beasts and Lady Sif, who we haven't seen in the Thor franchise for quite a while. Once back on Earth, we get the big reveal of the movie and the trailers, which is another returning character not seen in the Thor franchise for a hot second, Jane Foster, who has now picked up the pieces of Mjolnir and become the mighty Thor, hoping that the power of the mystical hammer will help her fight away the effects of stage 4 cancer, which is eating her from the inside. From there, Thor's group travels to the central community of gods throughout the universe, hoping to find support and an army they can take to fight Gore, who has stolen the children of Asgard, apparently in aim to bait a trap for Thor, which will allow Gore to get into the very centre of the universe, where a being resides that will grant the first person to reach them one wish of anything they desire. Naturally wary of what a man called the God Killer would wish for, the ruler of the gods, Russell Zeus, is frankly too cowardly to do anything about it, leaving Thor and company to descend to punchy shenanigans and go after Gore themselves. Whereupon, after an incredible 
one-sided fight, Gore Steel Stormbreaker, using the power of the Bifrost to open the gateway to the centre of the universe. But along with all these thunderous aspects, there's the theme of love, with Thor trying to reconnect with Jane Foster, and the movie examining how their relationship blossomed and then soured in all those spaces between movies where we didn't see it. Ultimately, at the climax, Jane chooses to sacrifice her own health in order to help Thor fight Gore, who I've just now remembered was actually called the God Butcher, but, ah, details. And her love for him inspires Thor to finally convince Gore to abandon his genocidal quest in favour for using his wish to return his long-dead daughter to life which was the precipitating event in the prologue which kicked off Gore's entire rampage of revenge throughout the movie. The movie ends with Thor and Gore's daughter now as a single parent family unit travelling across the galaxy as Love and Thunder, the two supremely powerful beings meeting out justice wherever they deem fit which bookends very nicely with the way that the movie began, having Thor again in these situations where it's not particularly challenging for him, but now he has a purpose behind doing it, which is to bring up Gore's daughter to teach and to instill the type of values that are going to grow her into a hero. So on the surface level, from that very brief synopsis, which of course skips over a lot of the nuance that's in the acting and in the narrative, it sounds like it's a fairly sort of standard movie for a a character like Thor. Directed by Taika Waititi again, you would expect it to sort of be in the same broad genre as Thor Ragnarok was, and with a lot of returning characters from Thor's movie time since then, including... Valkyrie, who plays a very large role in the movie, and the fan favourite Korg, voiced by Taika himself, who again is a very prominent presence alongside Thor's adventures throughout space. And in a lot of regards, the Taika stamp on this movie is very, very present throughout, but unfortunately it suffers from a, I guess, common affliction with movies that build on one another after the first movie departed so greatly from what had come before it and had found resounding success. And it seems that after Thor Ragnarok really set the style for this type of exploration of Thor as a character, this as the following movie, the direct sequel to Thor Ragnarok, which has to also include all of the different things that has happened to Thor in the Avengers movies that have been in between, but which basically and rather unfortunately decides to address all of that in one getting fit montage in the first few minutes of the film, with literally everything else additional breaking one of those cardinal rules of storytelling and telling us everything through Korg narration as he's telling a story to children, rather than showing it to us through the way that Thor's character acts and reflects upon the things that have happened. Thor Love and Thunder really sacrifices the substance of the movie in order to service that style. It really feels like every time there was an opportunity to make 
uh, you know, a narrative choice on something that would be better for the story or something that would make a better joke, the movie always chose to do the latter. Really serious moments between Thor and Jane are given a a broad wash of humour, even where it's not really appropriate. And it's a real testament to just their incredible acting chops that even through that mask of light-hearted, jokey styling that is given to every scene they appear in. Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman are acting the hell out of their scenes where they have to both confront their relationship and how it turned out, where they had thought it was going, where they've ended up. Those moments, there are times where it really connects with the audience and where they're they're able to act through the silliness to bring something that's really heartwarming or heart-wrenching to those scenes. But it's impossible not to notice that the actual movie itself isn't really taking itself terribly seriously, even in those moments where it probably should be. There was a really great opportunity to not only give Jane the shits and giggles of flying around as Thor, but also to really give her the proper pathos that came with what she was sacrificing to get that, and frankly, to make her a bigger part of the movie. The movie is titled Thor, Love and Thunder. It doesn't mean it has to be Chris's Thor as much as it was. Jane Foster is still Thor in this movie. But it did feel very much like she was the supporting actress Thor, not given sort of the equal billing that she could have been, which would have really brought her back into the franchise and given her a really powerful send-off that honestly felt like it was the result of her story arc throughout the film. It still feels, although there's a really good attempt made at it, and for the most part it is successful, it does still sort of fall down at the end where it, it really feels like the only reason that Natalie Portman's Jane Foster was, I guess, allowed to don the mantle for this one is because they knew they wouldn't have to worry about it anymore afterwards because she just gets uh, cancered off at the end, which I think also probably hits that little bit weaker since it's also a very prominent theme of a female character's death in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which is linked so heavily at the start of this movie. And it just sort of, it gives it a bit of a weird synchronicity where Peter Quill's mum dying of cancer was a massive character thing for him throughout that film that he that he worked through and he's carried with through the second Guardians of the Galaxy film. And it kind of makes it hard to separate when we're introduced to Thor, Love and Thunder with the, the same visual styling as the Guardians of the Galaxy films, which it then retains throughout the movie. And you've also got this plotline running in the background for one of the female characters. It makes it very hard to see her as an active central character and not being there as a supportive role to 
Chris Hemsworth Thor's character journey through the movie. And again, I feel like that would be different if you were looking at the movie sort of on its own, but as part of the MCU, you expect the audience to have seen these other films and be familiar with these other characters and their stories and their character journeys. And the sort of the similarity for that was a was a major narrative sticking point for me, I guess, going through it. And it made it pretty clear from the get-go, like, we expect Jane Foster to die, if for no other reason than the fact that she has these powers of the mighty Thor now. And we sort of, at the back of our minds, unfortunately, it still seems unlikely that Marvel would allow two Thors to be running around in the same universe, so we know one of them is going to go, and we know it's not going to be Chris. And I don't feel that the movie really recognised that they had an opportunity there to use that audience tension more effectively, rather than sort of glibly surface level addressing it, but and undercutting every one of those serious moments with as many jokes as they could get away with. And then once they hit that limit, adding on four more. On the flip side, I came into this movie really expecting Gore to be a horrible villain. Uh, just because from all everything I saw in the trailers, I couldn't unsee Christian Bale. Uh, he just seemed like this was a, a movie where Christian Bale, the actor, was the, mo- was the villain. He's just such a... He's so visually recognisable as Christian Bale throughout this movie. It was, it was difficult at times to take it seriously and to remember that this was a character and not a, the actor. I haven't had that problem with any of the other Marvel characters. They're in you know cameo appearances, of which there are a lot in this movie, or famous actors being used for other roles. Like to take the obvious example, having Anthony Hopkins playing Odin, he still he inhabited the role of Odin. So I just saw Odin while I was watching those. Having Matt Damon turn up as this acting as Guardian alongside Sam Neill and Melissa McCarthy, I was able to sort of nod and chuckle, but certainly for Damon, at least, imagine that as just another Asgardian. But having pale Batman running around, ripping the heads off space chickens in front of a group of kids hits pretty differently. But I was very glad that, again, the all of the acting performances in this movie are top-notch. Like Everybody brings beyond their A-game to this, uh, and it's it's obvious that people are really enjoying their roles as well. Seeing Christian Bale just really getting to go off his nut as Gore, when Gore's at the peak of his insanity, is great. It's great fun, it's hilarious, and it's creepy, and it works really well. It works much better than I thought it would from seeing his appearances in the trailer and in the prologue, where... He is 100% himself, which kind of cuts it down a little bit at the end of the movie as well, where he he returns to being his normal self once the god-slaying sword that he carries around has been destroyed. When he's making his wish and, and speaking to his daughter right before he finally passes on to the absolute nothing which is awaiting him, it's really just Christian Bale again, which undercuts it a little bit but he acts it well. And in the end, even though he is visually so recognisable, he still absolutely sells the character 
and sells the villain. I believed 100% that Christian Bale had gone insane and was going around killing gods, which, as I said, I did not expect to be as invested in as I was, and which was really a very refreshing aspect to the entire experience, just having a villain that was really quite compelling, was hypnotizing to watch, and just having that tension running in the background that you didn't know what he was going to do next. He, you really felt he could pop off at any moment, and that worked really well, especially in the context of how, again, self-aware and deliberately silly a lot of the movie is. There are a lot of funny scenes in this. It, the choice to preference humour over substance does pay off. It's a fun time. But it is it is silly popcorn nonsense, which is sometimes all a movie has to be, but which I you know, personally have come to expect from the MCU movies the, that we've had in the past. There's a strong character journey or statement on a character which is underlying the silly popcorn nonsense of the superhero stylization. And it, it does, ultimately it feels like this movie sort of tries to get there, but decides that it doesn't really want it enough. So if you like movies that are about the spectacle, the colour, the screaming goats, the mile a minute quips, then it's great. And I didn't hate it when I when I was watching it. I didn't hate it when I was walking out of the cinema. But when you can directly compare it against its most obvious comparison in Thor Ragnarok, you don't have the strength of the character journey of having a central character or a pair of equally weighted central characters that are trying to reconcile the idea of who they are and who they want to be and what it will cost them to sit in either of those roles. I mean, this movie literally has Jane Foster saying that she became the mighty Thor on an outside hope that that would cure her cancer or help her fight her cancer, which is a lot more of an extrinsic motivator than I think we would expect to see for something as built up in the MCU uh, as Thor's hammer and the idea of being worthy to carry it has previously suggested. We've always had the idea that the people who have picked up and wielded Mjolnir have done so because of the intri- their intrinsic qualities and how their understanding of themselves has reflected in their actions and their morality. Not because you know, Thor once whispered to his magical hammer to take care of Jane, and so it did what he said, whether or not Jane had the appropriate motivation to pick it up. I mean, when Thor, Chris Thor, picks up Mjolnir and becomes worthy at the end of the first Thor movie... It's because he was finally, he'd finally overcome the the cruel, selfish boy that he was at the start of that movie, and he was acting for others and 
for the interests of others, and that's why he was worthy of the power to fight. When Steve Rogers picked up Mjolnir, he was picking it up on behalf of the entire freaking universe. He was worthy because we've seen consistently how Steve Rogers places the needs of others before himself and wields power for that purpose, for the purpose of protecting others. So to turn around and say, I felt that the hammer was calling for me because I really wanted a way to beat my cancer doesn't seem to jive with everything else that's come before it. You know, she wasn't she wasn't picking it up because it was the only chance that she had to stop a genocidal maniac from destroying half of the universe. It feels compared to that, it feels very cheap. And it feels like Jane deserved more than Thor said so, so I can. It really honestly feels like it should have been a case where Jane goes to New Asgard looking for a cure, hoping that the advanced space magic of the Asgardians would be able to stand in where human science had failed. And when Gore attacks New Asgard while she happens to be there, you know, she needs the power of the hammer in order to step up for a worthy cause that reflects her own heroic worthiness, rather than just trying to use the hammer as replacement chemo. So overall, I guess it's clear that there are a few sticking points for me, at least, in far of the narrative journey of the movie. But at the end of the day, it is pretty good, silly fun. And if that's all you want to get out of it, then this is a good movie for that. Personally, I'd still... This ranks probably pretty low on my Marvel pecking order. It's been a while since I re-watched Thor 2, but even in terms of the, the Thor movies, this doesn't come close to Ragnarok. And part of that may just be because it is the sequel to what was a vast tonal and stylistic departure from what the other Thor movies had been, so that novelty value is gone. But for me, I think I was expecting more heart and a bit more substance to what is admittedly a fantastic style. But what about you guys? Did your mileage vary on that? Do you think that I'm being a little overly critical on some of those aspects, or am I giving it too easy a pass when I say it's, uh, it's still good, silly fun? Did the jokes land for you? Did you feel that sort of emotional connection between Chris and Jane a, a little bit better? Did you feel that emotional connection between Jane and Odinson Thors, which I felt was a bit lacking? Or is there another part of the movie that I didn't bring up that you think really illustrates a point that I that should be made when we're talking about it? If you do have any comments of those nature, please uh, let me know. You can reach out on the Talking Fiction Discord server. There'll be a link to that, as always, in the show notes. Or you can reach out to me directly at terrytalksfiction at gmail.com or visit the Terry Talks Fiction website and leave your comments in the comment section of the podcast page there. I feel like there's probably, as we said at the top, a wide variety of opinions on this movie. And I'd, uh, I'd be really keen to see, to see what you think and... Uh, have a bit of a discussion around it. 
Next time on the Terry Talks Fiction Podcast, we have another author interview with Nikki Lee, author of The Rakan's Familiar. I'm really looking forward to that one, and I hope that you guys will enjoy it too. But until then, I hope that you read, watch, or create something absolutely incredible, and I look forward to talking about it with you very soon. Wow, even after he was dead, the only black guy in Asgard still has to be the doorman, huh?